Uh, this morning, we're concluding our SAFE series, SAFE, It's Killing You. We spent the last three weeks or the last few weeks talking about um, these incredible people in the Old Testament that lived in precarious times that God used in great ways. We began with Joshua, and then last week we looked at Esther, and this week we're talking and looking at the life of Daniel, and for those who were here last week, don't worry, I'm not going to try to teach the entire book again. But we said it this way, uh, that in America, we have an addiction, a consumption with safety, and in fact, one of our own proverbs says this, better safe than, help me out, Sorry, yeah, that's an American ideology. And here's what we know about safety, and I haven't said it yet, and so I, I, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't say it. Here's what we know about safety, because some of you have been wrestling with me internally. You're like, no, safety. I'm actually a part of safety at my job. That's like my role, and this series is grading me. Um, here's what we know. Um, safety is a useful servant, but a harmful master, right? Safety is a useful servant. It's, it's useful in that we would make wise and prudent decisions. However, if we allow it to take control of our lives, it then becomes an idol and keeps us away from the things God is calling us to and who he's calling us to be. And so we've said it this way the last few weeks. You are not created to play it safe, but to live a life of significance. You are not created to play it safe and go through the motions and circle the wagons. You are created for a life of purpose and significance and meaning. And the reality is, is you can either live a life of safety or live a life of significance, but you cannot do both. And so this morning, we're going to look at the life of Daniel and how to live with this deep conviction of like, I'm going to lean into this life of significance and away from a life of safety. Um, a few years back, I took my daughter to Haiti. And I have this passion that my kids would experience God and, and his heart and his world and what he's up to. And so, yeah, you can show this picture. And so a couple years ago, we went on a trip. Next slide. Uh, there you go. Oh, boy, that is way, you can tell I did my own slides, and I obviously wasn't wearing my contacts. I don't know why that came out so bad. Uh, hopefully, the other pictures aren't as bad. Uh, we went on a trip to Haiti, and we had this incredible time, and you can't see anything there but blurry blobs up there. You go to the next slide, see if there's anything better. Is that the next one? It's a little still pixelated. That's weird. Hey. Here's what was so cool. This amazing moment with Ella, her heart for um, kids who don't have moms and dads and seeing what's happening around the world. Uh, what an experience to share with my daughter. Now, a couple weeks later, we come, we're back at school, and she's kind of the hero of her school, right? She goes to this Christian school, and they're like, you went to Haiti. This is amazing. Share all these sort of things. Then one of these moms comes up to me in the hallways like, I can't believe you... Take her, took your daughter to Haiti. What a neat thing. What a great experience. And I was like, yeah, it was. You should do something like that with your child as well. And she looked at me a little confused and a little, huh. She said, well, yeah, no, that's nice, but, but something might happen. 
was like, oh, okay. You're right, something might happen. But what might happen is probably the thing that you're not actually thinking about. See, as parents, what we internalize in fear, and we just want to create this safe cocoon for our kids to like grow up in, and we don't want any harm or anything bad to happen for them to have any struggle, because God forbid they struggle and learn and grow up to be wise and skillful human beings, but we put them in this cocoon and just shelter them. I wonder what might happen if we do that. Because in my head, I didn't say this out loud, because it would have been a jerk move, but, but something might happen, you're right. Something might happen to your kid that they might see a God who's way bigger than just the Silicon Valley safety God. They might see a God who's at work around the world. They might see that prayer actually works. That God is a big and amazing God. Something might happen. They might grow a heart for the things of God. They might catch a vision for their life. You're right. Something might happen. Could it be? Just for parents here. That perhaps the reason we're seeing an entire generation fleeing the church who grew up in the church is because we've passed on a safe and weak God. Man, if your God isn't big enough to go on a trip to Haiti to serve those who need, that's a really small God. And the reason, the reason I have this conviction, the reason I so long for my kids to experience God is I have this conviction. God has called you to more than what this world invites you to pursue. Like deep-seated, this is what a conviction is. This is a belief at the core of my being that God has called me to more than what this world is inviting me to pursue. God has called you more to more than what this world is inviting you to pursue. Like the, um, the carrot that the world's dangling in front of you, whether it's success or upward mobility or somehow meeting the right person and getting relationally, all those things, they're nothing bad with them, but God's called you to more. Listen, following Jesus, I want my kids to get this. Following Jesus isn't a duty It's not a religious thing. It's a divine adventure. It's a divine adventure where you step out and you trust God and you get to see God work. So how do you live with a conviction like that? This past Thursday, I was uh, hanging out with some brand new friends. Just recently moved to the area. He took a a job at one of the big tech companies. And he happened to be here a couple weeks ago, and when I was talking about safety and talking about this world and, and Silicon Valley, you can be everything but a Christian. And he said, you know, that's really right. And at work, the culture is so hostile to my faith. Just, just the entry points made it so that I just, I'm not even sure what to say, when to say, and I'm just going to keep to my own. Listen, how do you be a man or woman of character in a culture of compromise? 
Better question yet, in Silicon Valley, in the world of pressure, in the world that, that has your, um, your success as the standard and everything else doesn't matter, what do you do when compromise appears to be your only option? Compromise to give way under pressure your convictions, to compromise your integrity, who God's called you to be, who he's made you to be, the man and woman that you are ultimately destined to be. Daniel was no stranger to pressure, lived in a culture that was completely antagonistic to his faith. In fact, the, the word Babylon has become one as a, a, an idea of what is completely anti-Jesus, anti-God. Living in Babylon is a, a colloquialism that we now use. And this is where Daniel was. He had a dilemma. A dilemma I believe that you're faced with every day. A dilemma of either... Be successful in your career, be successful where you're at, or hold to your conviction. And so, in the opening chapters of Daniel's life, we see a young man live with conviction, and we discover, how do we do this well? Like, how do you live out your faith well, winsomely, with integrity, in an environment that's hostile. If you got your Bibles, would you turn to Daniel chapter 1? We pick it up in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The year 605 B.C. This is going to be one of three invasions of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. He plunders the city of its precious resources. Then he takes the leaders of the next generation, all the young leaders, and and deports them back to Babylon. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court official, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men. These young men are age 14 to 17 years of age. These are teenagers. Without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This is the very best and the brightest. They're good-looking and great-thinking. They're, they're all of it. They're the total package. You look at them and you just go, wow. <laughs> you know, this is who they are. You, you know, I recently saw that at Stanford, the average GPA for admissions is a 4.18. That's not bad. <laughs> By the way, at Stanford, that's average. These are the top of the class. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, this indoctrination into the ways of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now they have this incredible luxury and food afforded to them. Now they were to be trained for three years. Sounds like some of you going through college right now. And after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now imagine this. 
You go from an exile, you go from a, a prisoner of war, you go from a slave to an Ivy League education, to a government opportunity with influence and power. Daniel and his friends are now enrolled in the Royal Academy of Babylon. Think Stanford, think Harvard, MIT. Among those who were chosen from Judah were Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Why? Because I want to strip you of your previous identity and help put on a new identity that we want for you. It happens in today as well, because when I ask you, what do you do? Your first answer is your work. It's your identity. For some, it's the badge that you wear, the key card walking around. That's your new name, Apple employee. That's your new name, Facebook employee. That's your new name, Starbucks employee. Whatever it is, some of you are like, no, that's not my new, that's not my new name. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar, Hanani, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego, renaming them after the gods of Babylon. This practice of changing names was a way to express sovereign control over others, saying, we own you now. You're ours. But Daniel, notice this. This is so good. Circle this word. This is at the center of what we're talking about. Resolved. Like, it literally means to set in his heart. Not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And then he asked, and if you got your Bibles and you're trekking along, circle that word, asked. He resolved and then he asked. I love that. He resolved and then he asked. He didn't resolve and then demand. Very different than the way many Christians approach. He didn't make an ultimatum. He didn't say my way or the highway, putting his superior in a no-win situation on the defensive. Because you give an ultimatum, your superior is going to bow up the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Well, why did he choose the food thing? You know, I mean, he got a new name. It didn't seem that big of a deal. He's now undergoing intense education in the ways of Babylon and Certainly, much of that is not very godly education. It's definitely no seminary degree. It's not a Bible college either. Secular in every way. Why draw the line here? What's at stake with this diet? As many of you know, the Mosaic Law talks about this dietary restriction and you know about being kosher and so certainly there is this sense that the Babylonians weren't kosher in the way they ate and there's things that would have been restricted and yet it goes deeper than that because from the king's table there's two parts of this that we miss from the king's table all the king's food would be first offered to the deities and so he would be eating and partaking of food that was not only unkosher, but it then would be part of the cultic worship of Babylon. And then it goes one layer deeper. To eat from the king's table is to then come under the king's sovereign will and to agree with what he says is true. 
See, why did he say this? He says, okay, I can draw the line. You can change my name, but it doesn't change my identity because I'm still confident in that. I can learn all these sort of things, but I'm really set and solid in my foundation. By the way, parents, he had a sovereign foundation set by his parents to be able to succeed in an anti-Christian, anti-faith, anti-Jewish world. He says, there's a line in the sand I'm going to draw right here. And think about how easy it would have been how easy it would have been just to go, look, man, we're, we got ripped away from our homeland. I'm not around my parents. Everybody else is going this direction. Look at the opportunity in front of me. If I draw this line in the sand, then that opportunity is gone. And I have no idea what's going to happen to my life. What's at stake? The finest education, unparalleled opportunity, luxury, Living in a privileged position in the kingdom. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Don't miss that. But i got to say, Daniel's approach gained him a lot of favor and compassion. And was a setup for God to work. I think sometimes we shut down God's work because we're just not too kind in the way we share what we share. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has signed your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now notice what Daniel does. It's so good, so powerful. This is incredibly important for us. He doesn't just throw in the towel. He doesn't go, oh, well, I tried. He doesn't play the victim. Life sucks. It's hard. Everybody's against me. Golly. Notice what he does. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice this. Please test. If you got your Bible, circle that test. He doesn't approach him with an either-or proposition. He's gone, let's do a win-win and see if my God shows up. Not an ultimatum. Hey, let's just do a little test. Anybody can test. Let's do an experiment. It won't hurt you at all. He doesn't disregard where this official's coming from because of his own conviction. It says, give us but vegetables and to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Okay, come on. This is so good. It's good. He has a conviction. He has this conviction that God has called him to more than what the world has invited him to pursue. And so he puts it on the testing line. Puts his money where his mouth is. He believes God will show up. And because of that, he's going, just give us a test. Because I have confidence and conviction that my God has not left me even though I'm in this place. And perhaps he's put me in this place. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food. Which, by the way, man, would that be hard? 
I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. I've done the Daniel fast for 30 days before. I've been to a party uh, doing the Daniel fast, and I was miserable. <laughs> Let's just assume they're not vegetarians. That this, this took resolve, and you're seeing everybody else get these choice foods, and I love food, man. This, this like hits home with me. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and some of you are like, oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> We're close to Napa Valley. You can't take away the wine to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. God supernaturally provides so that they can obey and live in Babylon. And that where you don't have to compromise your God-given values and convictions to live in the land of Babylon. It's not either or. And I got to say, what I watch often is one or the other. Either Christians who go like, nah. And such a bad testimony. And then the other side of just, you acquiesce to what's going on around you. You get caught up into the current of the culture. The chapter closes this way, so powerful. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Think about this. Daniel makes a decision that he thinks... (laughs) He thinks that he is, oh, I skipped a verse too. I'll get back to that verse. Uh, he thinks is going like, to be a competitive disadvantage. And God turns it into a competitive advantage. Verse 17, the verse I skipped said, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams Like God said, I'm going to bless and honor your obedience. Remain there. King Cyrus, now let me give you that. That's four kings that he got to serve under influence. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Cyrus. Two different kingdoms. Approximately 70 years. He started as the first exile, and he got to watch as and the, Israel was able to return back to the promised land. Now, chances are, In your life, there's a decision you are facing or will be facing that will require conviction if you are to honor God. Will require conviction if you're to be the person God made you to be. Will require conviction if you're going to live a life of significance. So I believe there's four just observations from this text from Daniel's life here that we can glean for how to live this out in Silicon Valley. How to be winsome women and men of God who live with integrity, who are known for our character, who who hold God's truth and word to be our foundation of our lives and yet at the same time navigate the Babylonian world we live in. So how do you live with conviction in a world where it feels like compromise is your only option? First observation for us is we got to stop making excuses we got to stop making excuses. I know some of you are like, hey, I already filled that blank in, Ryan. Thank you very much. Good on you. Stop making excuses. If anyone could make excuses, Daniel 
can make excuses. Play the victim. See, here's how it works in our world. We say things like, well, you just don't understand. No, no, no. You don't get my world. You don't understand. You don't understand the culture at work, Ryan. You work in a church. You're around Christians all day long. You just don't understand how difficult he or she is. It's just been ongoing, nonstop, grating. You just don't understand the pressure I'm facing. Like it's so intense. It's heavy right now. You just don't understand I'm just so lonely. I just, I'm just so lonely right now. You just don't understand. I, I, I have needs. Like, come on, man. You just don't understand. I, want my, I don't want my kids to miss out. Like, like, I want them to be able to experience and have and do. You just don't understand. Everyone else is doing it. This is just... This is just where we're going. It's inevitable. You just don't understand. It's, it's really not hurting anyone. You just don't understand. I, I don't have any other choice. It's just what's before me now. If we're going to be women and men of conviction, of character, integrity, First, got to stop making excuses. And compromise, by the way, always finds a compelling argument for why it's most reasonable. Compromise always finds a compelling reason for why it's most reasonable. Now think about Daniel. Because if I was Daniel, uh, let me tell you my process of thought. Okay, if I draw the line in the sand here, because I can spiritualize things. I'm really good at that. And this is what we do all the time to, you know, make a reasonable answer. We make it a spiritual, well, God, you know, God doesn't want me to be lonely. God wants me to be happy. Like, listen to this. This is so good right here. Okay, if I draw this line in the sand, God has put me in a place of privileged position to have an influence. If I draw this line in the sand, I'm going to be ripped from that moment. And what if I miss out on it? Somehow to attain the blessing of God without the obedience from God. And we try to get that all the time. See, Daniel, think about his excuses. A teen, 14, 17 years of age. Some of you high schoolers, some of you college students, I just got news for you. Man, you're a world changer. Don't believe anything else differently. God's got such big plans for you, and it's not one day, someday, when you grow up and do something. Man, he wants to use you now. And when you go, no, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to believe that God has more for me than whatever this world has to pursue or offer me. Then he's going to use you, and he can use you on your high school campus, on your college campus. And you just begin to go, I'm going to lean into that, and I'm not going to use my youth as a excuse. Daniel was torn from his family, and for some, your family history has been your excuse. I don't, I know that's a painful area. 
But your family, you've kind of gone back and, well, I could never, I could never. God says, no, 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 I want to use even all the broken pieces of your life to bring out a beautiful picture of my grace, if you will allow me to. Taken to a foreign land, stripped of his identity, Babylonian indoctrination. If anybody had a chance to make an excuse, it should have been Daniel. I love the way the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living plenty or in want. And this is the context for the verse we quote all the time out of context. (laughs) I can do all this through him, Christ, who gives me strength. You may be in a hostile workplace, but you have the Holy Spirit empowering you. And where you would look at your workplace... And go, no, no, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I am not on my own. I am not powerless. I am not a victim. I am a spirit-filled, powerful follower of Jesus who has been called. And since I'm called, he's going to equip me as I go to bring about grace and life to a hurting and broken world. And perhaps, like Esther, we talked about, you've been placed there. And God wants to use you. If we're going to be women and men of conviction, we've got to first stop making excuses and second, predecide to honor God. Predecide to honor God with your time. Predecide to honor God with your sexuality. Predecide to honor God with your finances. Predecide to honor God with your relationships and with your family and with your work. That word resolve and Daniel resolved. It means to fix conclusively or authoritatively, to set upon one's heart. Well, Ryan, we don't really do that anymore. We're not a resolve culture. We like our options open. I get that. Except I've run into so many gluten-free people, I think they're pretty resolved. (laughs) Whole 30 people seem to be pretty resolved. Ketosis diet. I don't know, the hunter and gatherers died. I mean, all those things. I, like, my CrossFit friends are very resolved. We see it on their Facebook posts or Instagram posts. I feel unresolved when I see that. The bar class people are pretty resolved. See, we have resolve. It's will you predecide, resolve, have an internal conviction that I'm choosing this day to follow Jesus. No turning back, no other way. For in him holds life itself. And here's the tension that we have in our world right now. Living my truth versus obeying God's word. Living my truth Um, that's like the number one word for 2017. I I was told by Chris Nye because he's so much more up on things than I. But the the word for 2017 was post-truth. Dash, post-truth. It's not a word. It's made it up. But we can do that these days. Now, here's the deal. If you don't know Jesus, you're new, you're going like, man, this guy's intense. I get it. We're talking about some really foundational things about who we are. Live your truth. That's fine. 
I just got to say, I think there's some really hard things you're going to travel through when you live your own truth. As followers of Jesus, though, we don't get that option. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man or woman comes to the Father except through me. As followers of Jesus, we actually allow God to define what's real and what's true, not us, in our preferences and our desires. And so that we say we're going to obey, resolve in our heart to honor God, honor the Lord, bring our lives under the authority of his word. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, by the way. Some of you never knew that. That's why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. That's how we started this series. Predecide to honor God. Let me give you a few examples. In your work, I will work with integrity, giving my very best, not taking shortcuts, because I am working for Jesus, not a paycheck. Working for Jesus, not a boss. Working for Jesus, not a grade if you're in school. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, pretty inclusive. Do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for, how's it go? Human masters. I couldn't read my writing. How about with your words? I will speak words of life looking to build others up. I will not let criticism, complaining, or condemnation come from my mouth. Imagine if that's what we're known for as followers of Jesus. Online especially. Where do you get that? Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up. Like I have a conviction based on God's word that I'm not going to allow any unwholesome words coming out of my mouth. I have a conviction based on God's word that I want my language to build you up. Or how about your eyes? I will honor every single person as a precious image bearer of God and not degrade them as a commodity for my consumption. Where do you get that? Let's, let's bring it old T right here, Old Testament. Job 31. I made a covenant with my eyes. Conviction, a resolve, not to look lustfully at a young woman. And I know this is both a male and female thing, but let me just talk to our young men and men and old men and any man in this room. If you're a man, I'm talking to you right now. I just want you to get your attention. Hello, okay? Do I have your attention? That's what I thought. That's what I thought. You hear that? You hear that? One guy. One. Let me tell you one of the reasons I believe the church is anemic and lacking influence and impact. Because we have men and women, but I'm just talking to men. I know women deal with this. We have men addicted to pornography and have no conviction in their life because they've been trapped by a sin that's been secret. And they say it's not hurting anyone, but it's undercutting your relationship with God and your impact. I just wonder if you could envision a church where men lived with integrity and they treated other people, specifically those of the opposite sex, with integrity and winsomeness and honor and didn't look upon them lustfully. What a difference we'd make in this world where you have this conviction, this resolve. You go, no, today I predecide to honor God. I'm not going to make excuses. Honor God, obeying his word. 
Third thing I see out of this text is then you graciously stand firm. Graciously stand firm. Christians sadly all too often obnoxiously stand firm. It's it's loud, it's annoying, it's in your face, it's ultimatum, it's posted online. And then when you get some, like, somebody kind of like, maybe just giving you a good response, you call it persecution. Maybe the issue was you to begin with. (laughs) I want you to know something about Daniel. Daniel was a problem solver, not a troublemaker. He didn't create trouble for his superior, his overseer, his direct report. He was called to do something that was against his convictions, and so he was a problem solver, thinking through, how can I solve this? And he kept at it, and so glad he had friends that he could bounce stuff off with, because I'm sure his idea wasn't the best idea at the beginning, but eventually got to the best idea, and he came with great solutions, thank you very much, to the problem. Daniel didn't impose his personal conviction as the standard for everyone else. Not everybody who was in the Royal Academy of Babylon ate just simply their vegetables. Only four. And I got to imagine with the grace that he did it, they didn't walk looking down on the people that were eating the other stuff. You know what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians? He says, what business, business, I think it's the technical term, it's in the Greek that way. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Answer, none your business. <laughs> so stop. Stop holding others to a standard you're not holding yourself to. And just simple, start, simply start obeying the word of God for yourself and see what happens. I love, um, this is the way Daniel lived his life through all those kingdoms. Many of you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel when he was, it was forbidden to pray. And he was like, you can't stop me from praying. I'm going to pray. Scholar Trimper Longman writes this in his commentary of Daniel. When Daniel heard about the law forbidding his prayer, he did not rally the troops for a strike or arm resistance. He prepared himself for death. See, Daniel graciously stood firm. Graciously stood firm. Paul, again, later in Corinthians, says, Be on your guard, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong. And then he says this great qualifying line, do everything in love. Did you know you can be courageous and loving? You can be strong and loving. You can stand firm in your faith and loving. It's not either or. If we're going to be a people that lives with conviction, the conviction that God's called us to more than what this world invites invites us to pursue. We've got to stop making excuses. We've we got to decide we're going to honor God, graciously stand firm, and then here, listen, listen, listen. We're closing. We're landing the plane right now. We're landing it. 
Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. I wonder how this story would have ended if Daniel didn't have his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just wonder if he didn't have three people that were traveling the same direction, had the same convictions, that they were running hard after Jesus, that they, that they could support one another. The author of Ecclesiastes says it this way. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Don't go it alone. Find people who are running hard after Jesus and run with them. And for some, you have too many people in your life. You're spread so thin, you don't have a core three. And for others, you have nobody in your life. That's the reason we do community groups, missional communities, and that you would have that core group of friends that you're like, man, we're running hard after Jesus. And by the way, singles, run hard after Jesus. And then look around and see who's keeping pace. Their marriage material. Don't try to bring somebody along and have them help. You know, like, pull them along. You don't want to marry a project. <laughs> so this, uh, this, this spring, I did something I've never done before. And um, this was kind of fun. I did my first ever triathlon. Now, I'm not a... Um, I'm not a good planner, and so my wife and I spent two weeks in Italy. It was amazing. And then four days after that, we did our first triathlon. Now, it was a sprint. It wasn't very long. Uh, it was a three-quarter mile uh, swim, a 16-mile bike ride, and a five-mile run. And so I was like, okay, got this. Come back. And let me just show you a picture. Hopefully this looks, yeah, this is my good. All my pictures suck. Okay. <laughs> this is me and my good buddy, Josh Fox. I've known him over 20 years. He's one of my, like, guys. And um, here's us getting ready for it. I got to tell you, my confidence is through the roof in this moment. I'm like, dude, we're going to knock this out pregame. We're like, all right, let's do this, you know. We're, we're right there. And then we get down into the water. And I'm wearing this wetsuit I've never worn before. I got this hood on before. And I swim. I surf. I feel pretty confident about the swim. And I get going. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. And then whatever gun goes off or bell, I don't remember. And then we just start swimming. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is so peaceful and so calm. And thank you, Jesus, for the day. And wow. And then all of a sudden, someone's hand goes, boom. And I'm like, what was that? And then I get kicked by someone else. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then I'm kind of looking up. And I'm okay, what is that going on? And then I'm like, okay, okay, I try it again. Boom, boom, hit by another few people. And then I feel my wetsuit that I hadn't worn before. is a little too tight, and it's pushing in on my throat right here. And so then all of a sudden my heart rate gets going, and I'm like freaking out in the water. I'm about 400 yards into this three-quarter mile swim, and I think I'm about to die. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so my whole world is like flashing before my eyes. And I literally have no lie, uh, no exaggeration, a full-out intense panic attack in the water where I'm like thrashing. And I'm surprised like nobody. I'm like thrashing, trying to get my wetsuit off. Like stuff that doesn't even make sense, you know. It's like the one thing that's semi-buoyant on me. And I'm like trying to, get, trying to take it off. And I'm looking around, trying to find anybody, everybody. To, I'm, I'm this close to quitting. I'm this close to giving in. In fact, at one point, I kind of waved to a guy. He didn't see me. I'm like, I don't know what those guys are doing in the water. They're supposed to be for our safety. <laughs> and then I'm thinking about 
the four other guys I'm doing this with. And that they're undergoing the same things I am. And in that moment, I resolve to finish the race. My heart still pounding, fear crippling. And here's what I thought. I'm probably one of the best floaters on my back than anybody on the planet. I can float like nobody's business. And if I have to, I'll finish it on my back. I may be the last one in, but I'm coming in. I will not quit. I'm not stopping. I'm not going back. I'm not giving in. And it was because there was four guys. And i got to tell you, if those four guys weren't a part of it, I'm not so sure I would have finished. In fact, I'm pretty sure I would have quit. And for some, you need to hear this. You've been going alone and you felt beaten down and you need to get your squad. You need to get your tribe. You need to get your faithful few that you're running together in. And yes, I know some of you are wondering, yes, I am wearing my triathlon shirt (laughs) underneath me because I finished. (laughs) And no, I don't wear it every night to bed, just most. (laughs) You stand up. We're going to close. I went long again. If you're going to be a man or woman of conviction, stop making excuses. Predecide to honor God. Graciously stand firm and then don't go it alone. And maybe this morning you find yourself walking into this room and you're going, Ingram, I'm in that compromise. Now, let me just tell you this. What sin has destroyed, grace will restore. And so we're going to sing this song, and I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And I'm going to invite you to come to Jesus. Like for some, it is the, it's the come to Jesus of today I resolve. For some, it's the day where you come to Jesus and you leave behind what you've been carrying. For some, you need to come and just simply pray with our team. If you wouldn't mind, just hold your hands open. Let me pray this prayer of blessing over you. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship, church.